Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. So here I am, sitting at home and wishing I was on the playa at uh, Burning Man right now. But hey, uh, the next best thing is to be here in Cyberdelic Space with you. Just now, uh, I checked the BurningMan.com website to see if my friend John Graham has his video stream online, but it wasn't there yet. Uh, And in case you missed this in the past, what John does is to uh, place a video camera on the top of the radio tower at Center Camp and set it to constantly pan across the playa. And uh, for an audio feed, he uh, uses one of the walkie-talkie radio channels that uh, people on the playa use. And while it isn't uh, anywhere close to the experience of uh, actually being there, it does uh, bring back enough memories to help you get over the fact that you're not there this year. According to uh, one of the posts on the uh, Psychedelic Salon Forum over at thegrowreport.com, some of our uh, fellow saloners are planning on meeting at the art installation titled McLightenment, which is uh, on the way to the man from Center Camp. I believe they are uh, going to meet there at uh, 4 p.m. Pacific time this Friday, uh, and that would be the 29th of August 2008 for those of you who are listening to this podcast sometime after the week that I post it. So uh, I'll be looking through John Graham's camera uh, at that time to see if I can find our little group when the camera pans their way. And uh, for what it's worth, uh, yes, I definitely plan on attending next year if at all possible. By the way, uh, I don't want you to think that Burning Man is the only happening event of the summer. I've already begun receiving reports from fellow saloners who attended the Boom Fest in Portugal, which I'm told is uh, another great festival, as is uh, Vortex in South Africa and uh, many, many others all over the world. So you don't have to live close to Nevada, where Burning Man takes place, if you want to attend a great party and uh, meet some like-minded people. And my guess is that uh, there are small underground gatherings like these, uh, even in China and other places that are uh, still pretty tightly buttoned down. But for this year, uh, my only festival is going to be here in the Psychedelic Salon with you. And to be honest, uh, that is more than most people ever get to look forward to each week. Now, one of the uh, reasons these podcasts can uh, keep finding their way to you every week is in part uh, due to the generosity of some of our fellow saloners. For example, uh, this week we received donations from Andy H., Jeff W., and Colin F. And I know that I say this every week, but uh, Andy, Jeff, and Colin, uh, I couldn't do this without you. And I sincerely appreciate your help, and uh, more importantly, I thank you for stopping by each week and joining us all here in the salon. Uh, It's good to have you with us. Well, uh, this week I thought I'd bring back two good friends of mine who we haven't heard from for a while. Nick Sand and Myron Stoloroff. And when I say bring them back, uh, what I mean is I'm going to bring their words back from a little over five years ago. The occasion was uh, John Hanna's Mind States Conference that was held at the International House in Berkeley, California near the end of May in 2003. Before I describe the scene in which these talks took place, uh, I want to say just a few words about Nick Sand. Some of uh, my friends like to call him St. Nick, and uh, I'm here to second that. Should you ever have the pleasure of meeting Nick, my guess is that you'll come away with the impression that 
This is one of the kindest, most gentle, and enlightened beings that you've ever encountered. I say that because uh, that's how I feel about Nick. However, uh, I've mentioned this to Usha before, and uh, as one would suspect, since uh, she and Nick have a very long history together, well, uh, Usha tells me that St. Nick still has his feet in the clay every once in a while. (laughs) And uh, when she said that, I noticed that Nick only smiled and didn't say anything, but uh, that impish smile of his spoke volumes. Right now, I'll, uh, I'll just say one more thing about Nick that uh, more or less sets his image in my mind. And that image is of his smile and infectious laughter. Maybe someday I'll, I'll get Nick to tell a few of his stories for the salon, but all of the ones I'm thinking about right now are extremely funny. <laughs> Nick's sense of humor is uh, right up there with Sasha's, uh, although it isn't quite as corny as uh, Sasha can get sometimes. A couple of years ago, uh, when I was in the early stages of writing the novel that I plan on publishing this November, I asked Nick if there was uh, anything essential that I should be sure to include in the story I was writing, which uh, is very psychedelic, by the way. And his answer was, the most important thing you can do is be sure that there are a lot of funny scenes. It's got to be funny if you're writing about the psychedelic community, because on the whole, we're a very funny lot, (laughs) or something like that. But today we're going to hear from the serious side of Nick Sand. What I'm about to play are uh, two of the short presentations that were made by what was labeled the LSD panel. In addition to Nick and Myron Stoloroff, the panel included Earth and Fire Arrowwood, Stan Groff, Ralph Metzner, and Dave Nichols. And if you don't recognize all of those names, uh, just Google them and uh, you'll see what a powerful panel this was. And for more about Myron and Nick, uh, you can click their names in the category section of our Notes from the Psychedelic Salon blog, where uh, you'll find uh, a few of their longer talks that I've already played here in the salon. Each person uh, on the panel that day gave a 10 to 15 minute presentation, and those were followed by a group question and answer session. Today I'm going to uh, play Nick and Myron's presentations along with part of the Q&A session. So let's begin with Susan Blackmore's introduction of Nick, and uh, I'll let it flow from there. Our next speaker is Nicholas Sand, who claims to be an unauthorized chemist and has been a prisoner of the war on drugs. He's currently writing a book called Psychedelic Secrets, so please welcome Nicholas Sand. Hi, everyone. It's very nice to be here. It's so uh, thrilling to be uh, with this uh, tribe here of people, new consciousness. Um, it's been a long time uh, hiding away, and uh, to be here is just so reinforcing with all these loving and brilliant people, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to be here. I asked Ram Das to come. He was thrilled to come. Uh, unfortunately, he's a star of his own show at Sun Valley, so he couldn't come. But he sends his love and his blessings uh, to you all. Time out of mind, mankind developed and moved through the eons at a slow and even pace. Technological advances were measured in increments, such as a tool advancing from a rock with one sharp face to being superseded by multiple flakes being taken from stone to make a finer tool such as an arrowhead or an obsidian knife. These seemingly small changes actually took millions of years. 
As these changes came to pass, language and culture also developed, each one acting as a vehicle in the evolution of consciousness. We all stand on the shoulders of those who have come through, come before. And as we develop the ability to communicate through language, both spoken and written, we increase the capacity for sharing. These advancements act both vertically through our descendants and horizontally by sharing our techniques with others and advancing our common consciousness by receiving the enriching feedback of others. This process of sharing through language our inherited ability to manipulate first stone tools, then concepts and symbols through language and printing, and then moving into the networking of electronic and virtually instantaneous worldwide communication are three quantum leaps of exponential increase in consciousness. Because of this consciousness, the spirit of each one of us looks out on an ever-shrinking world and cosmos with less fear and misunderstanding. We are able to do this because we share concepts and tools that allow us to manipulate our environment. As we do this, we can enable ourselves to develop from frightened reflexive creatures hiding in our caves into beings who can share one world and one spirit of our species' mind reflection. It is this reflection that we call God when we look outward and soul when we look inward. This spirit of life, which inspires us to love and create, is actually the only thing of real and lasting significance. I will use the word spirit to avoid the problem of corporate copyright infringement. The interplay of spirit and human accomplishments expresses itself through these interpretive constructs of language and concept. The continuity of these constructs through which we perceive the world is what we call tradition. Tradition is the stabilizing force of these patterns through time. As we move on through time, these traditions which give meaning and stability to life and culture must change as superseding constructs and concepts force the antiquated and limiting constructs to give away to more inclusive ways of looking at things. And this is the problem because we form emotional attachments to the constructs of traditional ways of looking at the universe in which we find ourselves. It is the breakdown of the constructs we use to create our sense of reality and the reformation of these constructs into workable and sustainable life patterns that is the real challenge. We find comfort in the traditional patterns to which we have become accustomed. When we have to drop these traditional ways as we struggle through the gap time before reformation that we find ourselves alone and afraid in a world we never made. This leap across the gap into the unknown is unavoidable, but it must be made. We have no choice as we are moved to higher levels of evolution. Change will occur. The constructs and veils of our collective consciousness have to give way. How to deal with this becomes a particular problem when we find ourselves, as now, in a period of ever-increasing rate of change. The breaking of the traditional ways of looking at things causes momentary pain. This leaves us with two choices, mask the pain or transcend it. It is the mind which mediates all this on the level of tradition that stabilizes on the one hand and the creation of new forms that inspires the human spirit on the other. 
These traditions must change because change occurs. Letting go of traditions to move more deeply into spirit as we let go, swinging from one branch and floating through space momentarily before we grasp with the other can only happen through moments of surrender, of letting go into the vastness. The terror of this situation can be alleviated through anesthesia and the use of mind-numbing agencies, or we can use some magical feather to carry us across the gap to a new grip on things. It is this last process that gives relevance to the rise in the use of psychedelic sacraments to help us navigate the traditional and sometimes conflicting programs which rob us of the energy necessary in this terrifying and glorious increase in the rate of change. Through the proper and intelligent use of entheogens, we are able to navigate over the landscape of these labyrinthine conditioned constructs and edit out the unnecessary and enervating conflicts hidden by the walls constructed by the mind and use the released overflow of energy to find the magical thread of spirit which weaves and integrates us through love. Let me give you an example to make this a little clearer. During the 17 and 1800s, European expansion into the Americas, both through the conquering of indigenous lands and the imposition of European religion and culture, caused a traumatic change in the ability of the surviving tribes to express themselves in their traditional ways. There was extensive alcoholism and cultural breakdown as the Western tribes were forced off their lands into reservations and forbidden to follow their traditional religions or even speak their native tongues. Around the year 1900, these Plains tribes discovered the use of peyote, which contains mescaline, one of the true psychedelics. The creation of the Native American church, which uses peyote to come to terms with conflicting operating systems of the native religions and Christianity, spread very rapidly all through the West from Canada to Mexico. Formerly, there were only two tribes, the Huichol and the Tarahumare, who used peyote traditionally. When anthropologists studied the new rituals, they found that these people had symbolically combined the elements of both religions. When given psychological tests, the members of the Peyote Church were found to have the highest profile of psychological integration, except for the peoples far to the north, who had been almost untouched by the European invasion. In this example, we can see how the ritual journey that uses the symbols of the two religions had been transcended into a more universal vision. This enabled the cruelly subjected tribes to come to a higher understanding of the two traditions, one historical and native and the other externally imposed. They used the peyote sacrament to see above the trap of irrelevant forms and find the thread of spirit which flows through it all. For myself personally, I grew up in a scientific community. My father, an atomic scientist, was a chemist who worked in the Manhattan Project and the Chicago Project. Both of these endeavors were crucial to the development of the first atomic bombs. Ironically, these brilliant men were peaceful, gentle scientists who had all, were always ready to explain any question I had. I remember going through an old box of books during my teenage years and finding a book entitled Atomic Energy for Military Purposes by Smythe. 
Inside the cover was a note to my father which said, To Clarence, may we find the intelligence one day to find a peaceful use for this force. In this book, naively published for all to read in the libraries, were all the procedures for refining uranium and building an atomic bomb. After many years, this book was surreptitiously removed from the library shelves, but the cat was out of the bag. Nevertheless, people were persecuted for entirely political reasons later on for the information released in this book. My father included. Perhaps for this reason, my father forbade me to follow in his footsteps, although I was very interested in chemistry and had some small aptitude in that direction. Little did I know that while all this was going on in one direction in the U.S., that another brilliant chemist in Switzerland, Albert Hoffman, was inventing the antidote for the unwise use of nuclear energy, LSD. My father was not just a city scientist. He was also a woodsman who taught me to love nature and live in harmony with it. My mother taught me only about one thing, love. She was pretty and mischievous and taught me how to cuddle. She also taught me how to wire and plumb and do all the maintenance necessary while growing up in an old farmhouse in the middle of Brooklyn, New York. She was always bringing in homeless people to cook them a meal and give them clothing. My mother was the envy of my friends because she allowed us to hold healing circles and take LSD in the attic where I had created a sacred space. Sometimes when we were making too much noise, she would come up in her bathrobe and her hair in curlers and plop herself down in the circle, much to the chagrin and dismay of my young friends. <laughs> then she would look at the most frightened of all of them and say with a mischievous glint, So, what's wrong with your eyes? knowing full well that we were all high on LSD. Then she would laugh, and we'd all have a good chuckle. <laughs> Although she never took LSD herself, she seemed to understand and appreciate what we were going through. As my interest in psychedelics deepened, I began to study anthropology and specialize in cultural revitalization movements, especially the peyote and mushroom cults. As the restrictions on the free sales of psychedelic chemicals hardened into severe laws, I began to use my intellectual inheritance to manufacture psychedelic sacraments. This allowed me to go deeper into the world of LSD. Eventually, I was taught the secrets of manufacturing high-purity LSD by Owsley and Tim Scully. When LSD is made in high purity, a certain magic obtains for the person that journeys with preparation and intention. Purity of intention and purity of product go hand in hand to produce a transcendent trip. There are no guarantees which Carter will open for you, but the odds are better with intelligent choices. For the chemist also, the mere intention toward purity is transformative, a path unto itself. This is alchemy. So what is the genius of LSD? Is it only a magnifying intensifier? Is it only an accident of having a tiny dosage that made it convenient to manufacture and distribute? I don't think so. 
When I began to navigate psychospace with LSD, I realized that before we were conscious, seemingly self-propelling beings, many tapes and corridors had been created in our minds and reflexes which were not of our own making. These patterns and tapes laid down in our consciousness are walled off from each other. I see it as a vast labyrinth with high walls sealing off the many directives created by our personal history. Many of these directives are contradictory. The coexistence of these contradictory programs is what we call inner conflict. This conflict causes us to constantly check ourselves while we are caught in the opposition of polarity. Another metaphor would be like a computer with many programs running simultaneously. The more programs that are running, the slower the computer functions. This is a problem then. With all the programs running that are demanded of our consciousness in this modern world, we have difficulty finding deep integration. To complicate matters, the programs are reinforced by fear. Fear separates. Love integrates. We find ourselves drawn to love and unity, but afraid to make the leap. What I found to be the genius of LSD is that it really gets you high. Higher than the programs, higher than the walls that mask and blind one to the energy-destroying presence of many contradictory but hidden programs. When LSD is used intentionally, it enables you to see all the tracks laid down and explore each one intensely. It also allows you to see the many parallel and redundant programs as well as the contradictory ones. It allows you to see the underlying unity of all opposites in the magic play of existence. This allows you to edit these programs and recreate superior programs which give you the insight to shake loose the restrictions and conflicts programmed into each one of us by our parents, our religions, our early education, and by society as a whole. We have reached the carrying capacity of our planet, probably overreached it, and we need to see this in time. And it is our conflicted conditioning which supports the self-destructive cycle. We need all the help we can get to see through the veils, which until this time have helped our species to survive. It is time to become conscious, and existence has given us this valuable tool, LSD, to start this process. I pray that we have the time and courage to make this next leap in evolution. I believe that LSD is one of the gifts given to us by spirit to do this. Thank you. Thank you very much. And now our last speaker of all is Myron Stolaroff, one of the great elders of psychedelic research. <laughs> Obviously, I don't need to say any more. Over to you, Myron Stolaroff. Thank you, thank you. It's a real joy to be here, and I'm so grateful for John for getting, putting this all together. I'm going to take a little bit of a look into the past of LSD uh, in this manner. Uh, Albert Hoffman arranged with Sandoz Corporation 
to transfer to the Albert Hoffman Foundation here in America all the research papers he had accumulated over 40 years. This constituted 4,000 papers. And thanks to the generous financial contributions of Bob Wallace, uh, for, for Rick Doblin, for Rick Doblin organizing things, and especially for these people here, Earth and Fire. did a fabulous job of going through the whole collection, digitizing it, and putting it on the Internet. <clears throat> so all of this information is available, but we have to keep in mind that there were a lot of people doing a lot of different things in researching LSD. Some people like to work with fish, and some like to work with spiders. And then there were those, as you'll see tonight, if you see Hoffman's Potion, at least one example of people who were determined to show that there was no use for LSD whatsoever. But there are only a, a, a small percentage of this group that did really important, worthwhile work. And one of my ambitions is to be able to go through the collection and uh, select some of the better ones and point them out uh, so people can recognize them. And as a matter of fact, this is pretty difficult because uh, my computer will download a paper in about five to ten minutes each, whereas the good friend that I'm staying with here in Berkeley, his computer will do it in one-fiftieth of the time because he has a high-speed computer. So if anybody wants to volunteer and help make this search, I'd be very, very grateful. Early in the week, I was talking to Albert Hoffman. I told him I would be here and uh, asked if he had some things that he would like me to say for him. And uh, he said several things. Incidentally, are you hearing me okay? Yeah. The first is that he's looking to the next generation with high hopes. Now, since he's 97 years old, that means that most of you here are the next generation. So, <laughs> so keep that in mind. <clears throat> Dr. Hoffman is absolutely convinced that LSD has a very important future. Too important a medium, by far, to be neglected. It's true that sometimes it's difficult and sometimes even dangerous if not properly used. But used properly, he's absolutely sure that new dimensions of consciousness and new levels of experience will be reached. Consciousness is the true nature of man, and LSD is a powerful revealer of extended consciousness. He's convinced that it would be insane to not use such a valuable tool. I'm sure a lot of you here agree. I'm going to make a brief summary of some of uh, the characteristics of LSD. Uh, 
you probably all know this and heard it before, but I thought I would just review so that we'd all sort of be working on the same plane here. First of all, I'd like to report, and, and I can't deny this because it's in writing, <laughs> but I'm on record as claiming that LSD is the most powerful learning tool that we have. But there are a lot of misunderstandings about it, particularly our government and the public at large. Uh, <clears throat> the DEA like to say that uh, LSD is dangerous and toxic, and uh, when I talk about it, I, I do admit that there's one really, uh, really powerful defect or one, one thing that makes it very uncom uncomfortable, and that is in order to have a valuable experience, you have to be honest. <laughs> I thought that might get more response. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <clears throat> the general mistake is that a lot of people look at LSD in the same way you look at, uh, at uh, allopathic medicines, that you take LSD and it does something to you. And actually, I think it works in a total different way. <clears throat> Having been working with this for a number of years and observing a lot of experiences, I'm convinced that what LSD does is simply open the door to your unconscious. Uh, unfortunately, one of the areas you encounter there is the shadow, as, as defined by Carl Jung. The shadow material contains all the stuff that we really don't want to know. A lot of it's painful and hurtful, and uh, so we have the ability with our powerful mind to repress this and keep it totally out of consciousness. So a lot of people, especially if they're not properly prepared and uh, don't realize these potentials, can get into those places and they can be very uncomfortable. Another thing that I found personally is that uh, <clears throat> the deeper that I've gone into my own psyche to clear things up, uh, I find that I run to run into more heavily defended areas. So the deeper you go, the more powerful is the repression. And also that means it's more painful to go through these areas. So I think a lot of people really stop exploring their own inner psyche uh, because they don't want to go into that deep shadow material. <clears throat> On the other hand, if you realize that this is what you're doing, and you choose to do it, the release, the release of shadow material is extremely rewarding. First of all, it takes a lot of energy to hold repressed material down. So as you, as you release it, that energy becomes available again. <clears throat> There's an opening in awareness. You see with greater clarity. Your intuition improves. Creativity improves. There's increased well-being and joy. And all of this from the release of this stuff that we're holding down that serves us no purpose. If we continue in our exploration, we find that 
doors are open to profound levels of realization. We discover that we're intimately connected to everything in the universe. Uh, we are more, we, and we find that we're immersed in this life force, which is, which is really inconceivable love. It's, we can look at our creation and see the enormous beauty, the wonder, the aliveness everywhere. <clears throat> As one who's abused LSD by trying to overcome difficulties with repeated experiences, I have found that a good meditation practice is an excellent way to keep the gains from experiences alive. Deepening meditation practice deepens your LSD experience and having more profound LSD experiences yields instant gains in deepening meditation practice. Now, unfortunately, there's a very tragic dilemma in our country. Our Constitution guarantees us freedom of religion. When we use LSD appropriately, it can provide a direct, crystal clear path to the height of spiritual ecstasy. It can provide the direct experience of the Godhead. And our government makes this valuable tool illegal. <clears throat> every coin that's minted, every bill of our currency that's printed, holds the letters, in God we trust. Yet we are denied the most direct path to experience and realize the Godhead. This seems to be, to me, an enormous tragedy. What might we do about this? I, th I think if we can plan something and have a goal in the future that we can work toward, that uh, perhaps we can find, uh, create a situation where we can resolve this problem and have the freedom of religion that we're entitled to. Uh, I suggest that we establish centers for spiritual realization combining the appropriate use of LSD with the meditation practice. Uh, the staff should include at least one leader who's well experienced in the spiritual employment of LSD, and there should also be an experienced meditation teacher, although it could be the same person if he has the quali qualifications. You need a, me a meeting place, and this can be as simple as someone's house. Each candidate who wants to join this group must first have a solo, well-prepared LSD experience with the leader, as provided by Jacob in the book, The Secret Chief. If the experience is satisfactory, he can join the group. If not, he can have repeated experiences until he is properly prepared. Members of the group will be expected to develop a good meditation practice. And you should be willing to devote at least 30 minutes a day, and better, it's an hour a day. And as your practice deepens, you'll find not only you find this easier and easier to do and more rewarding. <clears throat> the, the group will meet weekly for instruction and meditating together. And once every one or two months, the group can meet for a shared LSD experience. The continual sharing of meditation and sacramental experiences 
reinforces the group energy while the learning of each individual contributes to the learning of everyone else in the group. Uh, What I've described here can open the doors to true spiritual development in a model that could well be incorporated by any sincere religious group anywhere in the world. Thank you. Well, thank you all very much. What a wonderful lot of speakers we've had. We now have about a little under 40 minutes for questions. Hi. This is a a dosage question, so it is perhaps addressed to earth and fire, but it's actually addressed to whoever on stage or in the room can answer it. I'm wondering whether in the days when Sandoz was manufacturing um, LSD, uh, whether there was a sort of standard dose um, in there. Can everyone at the back hear the questions all right? Yeah. I'd you. suggest having, having Myron answer that. Or having one. Well, it, it, it came in, in the standard amounts. Uh, they supplied pills of 25 micrograms each, and they supplied ampules of 100 micrograms each. And then I think it was, they expected the researchers to do the work to find out uh, what the best combinations were for certain situations. Next question. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) I'm honored to say thank you to you. And I um, would like to inquire about the intentional evolution of consciousness and to get more ideas uh, from you on how can we incorporate memes for our growth, um, how can we adapt our hardware, this vessel, um, to be a better receptor site, to generate a higher vibration, how can we move on to a new octave, and use our light bodies in a more effective manner. Are you asking anyone in particular? All of you, please. Any concrete ideas? Who would like to answer? We're all as unique and individual as snowflakes. The responsibility for our consciousness has to be taken just for who you find yourself to be. Because there is no template that you can use. There are many designs that you can use. Um, For myself, I have found that using psychedelic drugs over and over and over, and I have used them over and over and over, um, is, um, after a while, unproductive. So I have found that what I needed to do was do something that worked my body, and I chose yoga. Some people use weights, but you need to use it or you lose it. Um, You need to do meditation, and you need to do extensive meditation. And uh, as uh, Myron said, 30 minutes a day minimum, I think that's absolutely uh, crucial. Um, And so what you have here is a bouncing between uh, action, um, on the um, the outward level where you're taking LSD and you're having an experience and then you go inward and you ground it and you work this experience so that you can observe all of the unconscious material that has come up and integrate it. You must do this. 
Otherwise, you will just keep repeating the same loop, the same tape that has been conditioned into you uh, without being able uh, to go on to new areas. Now, once you adopt one or more practices that help you ground this experience, you can then go onward with further experiences and you will start to break new ground. Does anyone else want to speak to that question? No? We'll move on to the next question then, please. Yes, an interesting phenomenon has come to my attention and to that of uh, many other informed people here. Uh, namely, there seems to be an acute shortage of LSD at the moment. There's a lot of speculation about whether this has to do with the uh, big bust in Kansas a couple years ago uh, and perhaps a shortage of ergotamine tartrate that might have been created by the DEA. My question is, is this, a, is this actually a real phenomenon, this shortage? Uh, is, it, does it, is this an example of some success by the DEA? Maybe the Arrowids know something about this. And also, if there really is a shortage of ergotamine tartrate, what are the prospects for the market making up for this in any short time? <laughs> reply to the first part of the question. I, I can't answer anything about whether there's a shortage of ergotamine tartrate, but um, we re have received for a, a couple of years now um, a lot of people saying there's a shortage of, shortage of LSD from around the country. Um, and so there is a perceived sort of a consensus of a perceived shortage to some degree or another. But we've also received, we also received that those people have told us that since we started collecting information about this in the early 90s. People have consistently said from around the country, oh, there's a shortage here, there's a shortage there. So it's not super easy to separate that message that there is a shortage now from just sort of the general, you know, uh, localized shortages in the past. And we do continue to receive reports from people saying there's no shortage here, you know, and identifying some particular place. So there are clearly places where <laughs> there are clearly places where where there where there is LSD available. I think there might be a demand for a map here. <laughs> one of the one of the ways that I, I think about this is that uh, because of the way that, that black markets or, or gray markets work, um, that's different from normal markets. In normal markets, you advertise things for sale. You go around and you put up billboards. And if people don't know about it, the primary thing you're trying to do is advertise the fact that you've got something. In, in the black markets, the way it works is it's a, a very much of a network and a node-based system where that if you're not on one of the lines of the network, you don't have any access at all. If your neighbor has 14 kilograms of LSD, they're going to do everything in their power to keep you from knowing that. Where, and so um, there, there's a, a very big problem of, that you can end up with very lo localized uh, glut and uh, global sort of uh, lack. Shortage. Um, so we, we have, I mean, we, can, we recently got a, uh, several emails uh, and a couple of people talking about um, a bunch of liquid showing up in the Northeast, and, um, and we got, uh, you know, there's these uh, brown microdots which have been going around, but I, they're so expensive and there aren't probably all that many of them. But 
so one of the sort of hypotheses as far as the you know bust a couple of years ago that and, and how that may have impacted it uh, the the supply of LSD is that even if there is other LSD out there it takes a while for those networks to regrow from different sources so that you have you know the sources have to get hooked into the networks of distribution that finally get down to the people before they necessarily even if there is LSD it doesn't necessarily have the distribution system so does anyone else want to say anything on that question yes Nicholas um, I don't think there's any shortage of ergotamine in the world. Uh, there are new fermentation techniques which are producing uh, 10, 20, 30 tons a year of ergotamine. There would be more LSD. We could take a bath in it if you know that were all converted to LSD. Um, the control of this substance, of course, is extremely uh, strict. And... Uh, licensing and the treaties and conventions to which the United States ties everyone uh, through uh, the UNDCP um, makes it very difficult to obtain, obtain these materials. However, where there's a will, there's a way. And um, although I'm not involved with manufacture and I'm only doing teaching of meditation these days, um, you do hear things. And um, my, my feeling is that you know, when I looked at the effect of LSD uh, during the uh, 60s and early 70s, I thought LSD creates change. But as I have uh, matured, I don't feel it. I think that LSD and all the psychedelics arise, as they did with the Indians. The, 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 the mushrooms were always there. The peyote was always there. But it only suddenly became... Uh, dynamically expressed in the culture when change became so strong um, that something was needed to help make the jump to a new level of consciousness. And I think we are at that stage now. Um, I think that the psychedelics are the midwives of change. That they help the change occur. The change is happening and when change becomes intense, intense enough, so I would predict, you know, having no real contact with this, I've been in prison for six years, I've cut all my ties with the underground, um, I just write and meditate and do yoga these days, um, but I would predict that there will be a lot of LSD around shortly because the change is so intense right now. Right, we're going to let... Even though he hasn't been queuing up, uh, we'll let John Hanna ask a next question. I apologize for cutting in line. I wanted to have this question prepared at the start to, to kick off the questions, and then I forgot to write it down. And then also I apologize because <clears throat> I haven't been paying attention to this panel because I've been pulled in a million different directions. Maybe you've already answered my question, and I know that I did see a little bit of your talk, and you, you sort of addressed a, a bit of it. And so what my question is, is related to um, LSD that's on the street and the fact that some people who obtained LSD in the uh, uh, 60s and 50s uh, who said that came from Sandow's, who said that that LSD was much purer, it gave them a much more uh, pure experience, and that the LSD that's on the street has given them um, sort of uh, a number of side effects that they feel that it is perhaps cut with things or tainted with things or that perhaps there are breakdown products that affect the neuropharmacology um, or that there are, are 
products of in, incomplete synthesis that affect the neuropharmacology, where these things are latching into the brain receptors um, and not allowing the LSD to have the full effect. Um, my own personal experience has been that LSD is LSD is LSD. I've never noticed any difference, but and it's always it's always affected me. You know, uh, set and setting differences, but it's always affected me physiologically the same way. I haven't gotten stomach cramps or I haven't gotten headaches or any of these complaints that some people have when they say that they get bad acid. Um, but other people have had these things. They've had, you know, what they term bad acid. And I'm just curious, um, you know, one person, uh, Jonathan Ott, who wrote Pharmacotheon, has said that the difference between the 60s and, and today is just the dose. That the doses today are much lower and they were taking much higher doses um, in the 60s. Uh, I'm just curious, your own thoughts as to whether or not neuropharmacologically, um, because if there are impurities, you would think that there are such a small trace amount that they wouldn't be pharmacologically active. So that, just some thoughts on that question. Well, for myself, I agree with you completely. I don't have much experience with street acids since uh, I got burned uh, in the uh, early 60s uh, with some uh, totally bogus, it was scopalamine or hyoscamine or something, and I went blind for three days, and then I decided that something had to be done about this. Um, but uh, I, think, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, all your reasoning, uh, in my opinion, is correct, and uh, the main difference is dosage. Does anybody else want to answer that question? Um, so, one, I mean, one of the things that, that you know, it's, it's really hard to separate. People's experiences of different types of acid are uh, reportedly very different. And so it, what, what do you do with that? I mean, there are people who claim that, you know, they've taken this one acid, you know, several times over a period of, of years, same, same type of blotter, and they get, you know, no visuals. It lasts a little bit longer, uh, no, no physical side effects. And during that same time, they take, you know, other, other uh, uh Types of acid, and they get you know lots of visuals and and you know sort of jaw clenching or whatever they whatever they report, and so it's it's very difficult to to sort of know exactly what to do with that. The um, one of the uh, people that I've talked to um, who is an aliquotter of LSD, uh, meaning a person who takes a you know a, a amount of crystal or something like that and, and deposits it on on blotter or something, said that uh, his experience was that he would put he would make some green blotter and some red blotter and he would give out the green blot he would give out the green blotter and the people would come back and say. Um, uh, or he'd give out both the green blotter and the red blotter. Both came from the same crystal, both made in the same way, and they'd say, oh, the green was so good, and the, the red was bad. And, and, and he said that every, like, consistently he'd get back from, from the exact same process people saying that one was good and one was bad. And he, his opinion was that that was mostly just sort of noise. But Although I think that from the HPLC charts that we showed earlier, Obviously, there are differences in the chemicals that, I mean, you, you can have pure DLSD on blotter, and you can have other things on blotter with your pure DLSD. So it's not as simple as just it's all the same exact thing that you're taking into your mouth. You have to keep in mind that of all the ergot alkaloids, LSD is by far the most potent. So if you had a blotter with 50 micrograms of LSD and 20 or 30 micrograms of some impurity, it's highly unlikely that impurity is going to have an effect because it's not going to be nearly as potent as LSD. The principal uh, contaminant is iso-LSD, 
And we've actually purified ISO-LSD and done preliminary experiments, so certainly not complete, but there's no evidence that the ISO-LSD really has an effect at the concentrations that would be in a blotter. Um, you have to have you have to have affinity for the receptor, and, and ISO LSD drifts way off by uh, over an order of magnitude in its affinity for the receptors we've looked at. Right, can we have the next question, please? I have a very deep concern for this wonderful community and for all of the communities which you see all over Berkeley, especially, which are the communities of people who are creative and whose lives are based on love. I'm old enough to remember what fascism is. I want us to, somebody to be seriously thinking, how do we protect the communities of creative people in this time? Uh, I look to for one example, to the Sufis. Sufis were persecuted in their countries, and uh, they developed whole systems of how to do it. Now, one of them was they were the local madman. No one ever knew what they were really up to. It was just this crazy guy. Uh, we're in a different situation. I can't imagine that we're going to do it that way. But whatever we're going to do, I think we need to begin thinking of it. My, my um, headline in the newspaper today has said that the government is going to remove all pot from America. <laughs> no, serious. This is, this is uh, Ashcroft is a very dangerous person and represents truly uh, uh, and is something that if you haven't experienced it and you haven't at least known the people who lived in it, Totalitarianism is, a, is just so different from anything you and I are accustomed to that we need to think how we are going to deal with it. Who would like to speak to that? Yes, Earth? I'll, I'm, briefly, I, I, I think there's, I mean, there's, people have very different views about, about what to do in, in the world that we live in. And, I mean, I, my own personal sort of view is, is sort of, you know, uh, publish, publish as if, there is no world uh, that controls, that tries to sort of make these things, tries to, to put people in prison for making choices which might be unhealthy for them or might not. And so other people that we talk to who, who don't necessarily either love what we do or, or don't think that it's right for them um, participate in, in mystery cults or mystery groups where they, they don't talk about what they do with anyone outside the groups that they participate in. And in that way, they protect themselves. And I think that each person sort of has to make a choice about how open they are with the, with the people that in their family and the people that they know and how much they want to share with the world and whether they want to post to forums on the Internet or whether they want to write about it. Um, but uh, and it's, it seems very individual to me, and that the only like in a lot of ways survival of a meme set is about diversity. That there's a, if, if there's a diverse set of ways of uh, of handling something, that it's unlikely that any single at attack against it will will completely eliminate it. I'll just very quickly chance. add something to that uh, to that question. Uh, I, I mentioned it passing in my in my talk that uh, I've recently come to understood. Actually, through the starting of the war on terrorism, I understood that war on drugs better. I now see that they actually both have the same agenda. 
which I never saw as clearly before. They're both fascistic agendas. In other words, the, the, the only purpose, the political purpose for both the war on terrorism and the war on drugs is to create fear in the population. And in the case of, in the, case of the drugs, for example, see the thing that confused me, it's not the, 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 the education campaigns are beside the point. That's just smokescreen. They're not trying to create fear in the drug users. Because they already know that it, there's nothing to be afraid of in using drugs. They're trying to create fear in the, in the general population that votes, that doesn't take drugs. So that drugs are demonized and uh, can lead to prohibition, can lead to jail sentences, and control and police state measures can be instituted. <coughs> and so we live in a fascistic society. The drug users are actually better protected than... Uh, say, Muslims and, you know, people from uh, yeah. Middle Eastern countries who look the way they look and who have to watch out for that. So discretion and caution, it's always been like that. We need Thank some you. memetic engineering. We need to let loose some memes that will counteract that. If anyone's got good ideas for that, um, be delighted. Um, right, next one. Question, please. So I have a question for, uh, I guess, uh, Nichols representing kind of reductionistic science and then Stan Groff representing, you know, this other kind of oppositional aspect. And, you know, you said that you can't, you know, you shouldn't view the, you know, consciousness or the mind as arising, you know, causally out of neurophysiological and neuropharmacological processes in the brain. But then how do you propose that we unify these two sets of observations, one of these transcendental transpersonal experiences that currently cannot be explained by conventional science, and two of the extremely powerful predictive science, you know, of neuroscience, systems neuroscience, neuropharmacology, chemistry, that we've, we've shown to be powerful by our technology and its predictive power for what, you know, what we can predict things will do to the brain. Well... You know, contrary to, to general opinion, we have absolutely no proof that consciousness comes out of the brain. Actually, we have a lot of evidence uh, that it is not the case. What we have is, is uh, tremendous evidence from experimental neurology, clinical neurology, experimental psychiatry, that states of consciousness are correlated with anatomical, physiological, yeah, yeah. biochemical changes. That's but a whole you, other... how do you propose a, to explain those correlations, then, is what I'm asking. Well, this is what they are. They're correlations. But that you make a major jump when you say this, is, this proves that consciousness comes out of the brain. Well, I understand, but the correlations be, still need to be explained in some way. And, you know, how do you propose to do that? Because it's an important thing to explain them. You know, I mean... You know, um, the physical world and, like, what's going on out there have to have well, some kind of correspondence. I'm sorry. No, it's a perfectly reasonable question. Everybody agrees, I mean, they're daft if they don't, that there are correlations there. And the question is, how do these two radically different approaches presume to explain it? So we can have you have a go same, at answering? We have the same relationship between a television set and the television program. You see, there are systematic correlations between what's happening with the, with the relays and the condensers and so on and the quality of the picture and the sound. This is what they are. They're correlations. We would laugh if somebody would think that this means, this is the proof that the program is generated in the box. Okay? This still leaves open some other possibility. We have just enormous number of observations. I don't have time to go into them, but I'll give you just one which is a re repeated observation that people in near-death situations, like uh, cardiac arrest in a 
during an operation, consciousness goes out of the body, maintains the, the, the ability to perceive the environment. You can watch your body from, from the ceiling, you can go through the wall, you can accurately perceive what's happening in other parts of the building, you can experience something that's happening a thousand miles away. There's no way the current model, the way we understand the brain, can account for that. You don't have to study medicine to know. Yeah. I'm going if, to have to stop if, uh, you there, I'm afraid. Um, if we're going to have a chance to, okay. for David to say something. I think he was also out. Did you also ask David? Yeah, yeah, I did. So, again, I provide the opposite perspective, or, you know, your perspective, I guess. Not so we need, we need a theory that explains yeah. the, well, current, I, yes, the current observations, yeah. but also yes, the observations I, I, from I an ordinary state. This, but how do you propose, you know, directions <laughs> towards such a theory? I think this is question. too big a question for here. Uh, well, I'll give a, just a very short time to David if he wants to say something. I think Stan was doing a great job. But... Uh, <clears throat> You know, I, I am reductionistic about 80% of the time. And certainly I have the view that these chemicals can change consciousness. Now, exactly how that happens, I'm not completely sure. But I have chemicals that I could give you that would reliably change your consciousness in very dramatic ways. They presumably act in the frontal cortex, which is the most recent evolutionary addition to the brain. It's where we make all of our executive decisions. And we don't really know what the cortex does. But as humans, it's the most important part of the brain we have. And I view these chemicals as really being more like a necessary but not sufficient switch that turns on a process. So if we use the television as analogy, these are like just turning on the power switch. What channel you tune to and where you turn the volume and so forth is set and setting and, and preconception and so forth. So I'm basically looking at these as a switch that, that somehow shuts off ordinary processing and allows consciousness to change. But where it's located, I mean, as a reductionist, I'd have to say it's a product of brain, but uh, publicly that's what I'd say. The question I have uh, to try to keep this short is basically we have the psychedelic experience and you know, we've talked a lot about that and perhaps the neurological changes. This is kind of directed to probably Nichols on the neurological changes, but any of you on everything here, that these changes that occur both in the brain and depletions of enzymes and uh, cofactors and all of that, depletions uh, for recovery, and then comparing that to meditation and yoga and uh, kundalini rising and those types of experiences, are those changes also seen when that type of energy is going through the system in a kundalini awakening uh, as it is in a psychedelic experience? And have you noticed differences in, say, yogis that have never done any uh, um, psychedelics at all uh, that then have those experiences versus... I'm mainly looking at... The, Can you keep it short? Yes, I'm, I'm in the final stages here. <laughs> um, mainly looking at whether the psychedelic experiences um, affects negatively the ability to have the natural yogic kundalini rising. Who would like to answer that? Look within and you will find it. <laughs> Thank you. Well, yeah, more like I'm a physician, and it's more that I work at a yoga, so I do the, the two. It's more of a conflict of trying to explain it scientifically. I, you see, there's an enormous spectrum of these methods. We had, uh, several years ago, we had a conference in Manaus in the middle of the Amazonian jungle called uh, the ITA conference, International Transpersonal Association. It was called uh, Technologies of the Sacred, Ancient, Aboriginal, and Modern. 
discussing the whole spectrum of uh, methods, you know, both ancient and modern, that can induce these kinds of experiences. And uh, there are certain, certain differences uh, when you induce it, you know, through different means, but they generally follow the same cartography. They bring up something from your individual uh, history, from postnatal history. They can make you confront your birth. They can take you to the prenatal life. They can give you anything from the collective unconscious, past life experiences, uh, take you into the archetypal realm. You can experience deities, demonic presences, uh, you know, oneness with the universe, right. oneness with God. Uh, so it would be very difficult to find the common final pathways for so many different things. They can happen uh, in a way that we have to call spontaneous because we don't know what's involved. They can, can happen through faster breathing. It can happen through withholding breath. It can happen through dancing and chanting, uh, fasting, I mean, you name it. You know. Next yeah. question, please. My question addresses the high possibility that Albert Hoffman didn't actually ingest LSD on that day. Um, I've observed that uh, all of my psychedelic friends and I experience altered mind states just by being in the presence of an entheogen. And I'm wondering how many people in this room have contact ties just by being in the presence of of, a, of an entheogen, Looks of a substance. Looks like about a third. So it seems to me that there's there's a possibility that we have some sort of entheogen sensing organ that we haven't detected yet and that this organ could help explain why we have discovered these substances throughout history. So my question is, is anyone doing any work to see if we can detect this? Because uh, I think it'd be possible to stimulate it without having any substances if we could find it. Anyone want to comment? Um, I remember thousands of years ago when I was still taking psychedelics that uh, when I would say, for instance, go to take some, any one of the psychedelics, um, I would have the same reactions when I was about to take it, um, like ropey saliva, uh, feeling like I was coming on, uh, chills, uh, all the same kind of things I'd get when I would take it. Right, we'll have... Another, oh, Ralph, did you want to say Very something? quickly, uh, you know, uh, that question relates to something that I have often thought is that, you know, the homeopathy works on this principle that the more you dilute the substance, the more potent it becomes. And in extremely high uh, homeopathic dilutions, there's often not a single molecule of the original starting point substance left in it. And I've often thought the action of LSD must be kind of homeopathic because it seems to almost get more intense the less you take. And uh, when and Hahnemann described that the more you dilute it and the more than you shake the, because that was the other thing, shaking it, it, it like releases the spirit from the matter. And that, then it becomes pure spiritual action in its pure form and it causes then the, the matrix to resonate. So, so, maybe, have to have so maybe ingesting LSD just guarantees that it's going to be in your body for a long time. And you can get whatever you get from it just from being in its presence. Right, last question, please. Hi. Um, my name is Bax Orbmanks, and I'm a U.S. Navy sailor, 16 years. Deep sea diver, medic with the SEAL team for the past four years. I have many experiences throughout my life 
I can't legally talk about many of them being still on active duty, which is only for about two weeks. But I would have to say I'm honored and privileged to serve you and you. And this is what makes it all worthwhile for me and my brothers and sisters who have already died, still dying, and still yet to die. This is what makes it all worth fucking while. Well, that's something of a note to end on. Thank you very much indeed. Keep it up. <laughs> Thank you very Thank much. You. And your thanks to all the panel, please. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. You know, uh, I almost cut out the ending of that question and answer session. But for those of us who were there, uh, particularly uh, those of us who are ex-military, it was a very poignant moment. I, uh, I scrambled the sailor's name who made that statement because I don't want to get him in trouble. But among the many things that are drilled into military people in this country is that uh, one of the main reasons they are sacrificing so much is to protect our freedom of speech. And so it was good to uh, be reminded of that at the moment. And in case you don't know, uh, there are really a lot of downloads of the salon that go to .mil domains. So I, I salute all of the service women and men uh, of all countries who are also a part of the salon. I know it isn't easy to do what you have to do uh, once you've begun thinking psychedelically. I know uh, because I went through it myself, but I'm sure that you're going to make it back to the world, as we used to say, and that upon reflection, you will then hopefully experience a, a deep spiritual rebirth. Until then, uh, keep your heads down. Uh, we really need you back home. I wish I had the time and energy to say all of the things that are on my mind right now about Myron and Nick. And since I also consider them dear friends, it's, uh, it's a little difficult to be objective about their work. For our fellow saloners who lived through the 60s, uh, especially if you were in the psychedelic milieu, you will uh, already have heard about Orange Sunshine. And, of course, Nick was the master alchemist behind that incredible product. And you can uh, also hear more about uh, those days in our podcast number uh, 37 and 54. And Myron, of course, uh, has been featured here in the salon on quite a few occasions, uh, including his talk at Dr. Hoffman's 100th birthday celebration and, uh, and the series of Lone Pine stories he recorded for us uh, just for the salon. And in uh, one of them, he provides a, a lot more detail about his first psychedelic experience under the guidance of the legendary Al Hubbard. Another good source of uh, information about Myron's work comes from the video he talked about just now, which is Connie Littlefield's great documentary titled Hoffman's Potion. As you heard Myron mention, uh, that film was screened at the conference later that night, and until now, that was the only time I've seen it. But yesterday, uh, I discovered that it has uh, been posted in uh, several parts on YouTube, and I'll embed the first of those videos along with the program notes for this podcast so you can see it for yourself. And I hope that you take the time to do that because uh, in addition to learning a lot about the early days of LSD research and experimentation, you're also going to get to uh, see some of the people who have either been guests or that we've talked about here in the salon. Another thing that I plan on posting this week is a copy of the 
first research report produced by the Institute Myron and others set up in Menlo Park, and uh, which is talked about in Hoffman's Potion, uh, particularly in Part 4. As far as I've been able to determine, uh, the only place this report has been published so far is on the www.hoffman.org website that uh, Myron maintained for many years. And by the way, uh, keep in mind that Dr. Hoffman's name has one F and two N's, H-O-F-M-A-N-N.org. And I'll be linking uh, to that paper as well as uh, to a review of the book, uh, Discovery of Love, A Psychedelic Experience with LSD-25 by Malden Grange Bishop. And uh, that little book, by the way, has uh, one of the most complete and detailed accounts of the protocols used for the people who were experiencing LSD at the Institute. The paper I just referred to, uh, Research Report Number 1, is a real gem. Uh, its authors were Charles Savage, Willis Harmon, and James Fadiman. And by the way, you can uh, hear more from Jim Fadiman in podcast number 42, where he talks about using psychedelics for rational work. Their report uh, is a summary of the results of a questionnaire sent out to about 150 people who had gone through their program. And what to me is most striking about this particular study is uh, that there are several sections where the respondents' answers are segregated by gender. And I find it quite revealing to uh, see how women and men sometimes view these experiences from uh, slightly different perspectives. I'll read a few sentences from the summary section to uh, give you a feel for what this paper contains uh, in the event that you want to follow up and uh, read the whole thing. Here's what it says. In overall summary, the most significant single figure is perhaps the percentage who claimed quite a bit or very much of lasting benefits, 83%. Even allowing for the unlikely possibility that all non-respondents were negative, the percentage would still be over 70%. The claimed improvement rate rises from 70% after one to three months to 85% after 12 months or more have elapsed since the LSD session. Most commonly reported benefits include increase in ability to love, 78%, to handle hostility, 69%, to communicate, 69%, and to understand self and others, 88%. Improved personal relations, 72%. Decreased anxiety, 66%. Increased self-esteem, 71%. And a new way of looking at the world, 83%. The sections that follow the summary are titled Sex Difference, Effective Time, Patients versus Non-Patients, and Outstanding Event or Insight. It's uh, truly a fascinating picture of a relatively large group of people, and hopefully we'll see more studies like this in the future. Now, there are a couple more things I want to mention before I go, and uh, one of them has to do with a fellow slaughter who can be found on MySpace under the handle Central Processing Universe, or uh, myspace.com slash cpuni. I think it was uh, through our forum over on thegrillreport.com that I first found a link to his piece called There Is More to This, in which he weaves some uh, McKenna sound bites into his music. As I've said before, I find some of these music tracks that sample a thought here and there from uh, McKenna, Leary, Wilson, and others uh, to provide a, a deeper impression of their thoughts than just listening to them in lecture format. So keep up the good work, Central Processing, and all you other sound sculptors out there. 
Your mixes are uh, some of the best ear candy around. And I can uh, really use a few pleasant sounds right now because there's a huge military exercise that seems to have uh, been going on for a while now uh, just north of here at the Camp Pendleton Marine Base. You know, uh, I'm a Vietnam vet, and even though I didn't go through any uh, really difficult times when I was in Vietnam, the sound of large explosives going off all during the night uh, has been making it very difficult for me to sleep. And we're uh, about 20 miles or so south of the bombing range, and uh, the sound of those bombs going off uh, right now is very clear when I step out on the back porch. I hope this doesn't mean that the nut job in the White House and his buddy Darth Vader aren't uh, planning a new October surprise. Uh, I guess all that bombing is just driving me a little nutty. Uh, hopefully it'll come to an end soon, and uh, not just for us lucky ones here on the West Coast, but uh, for everyone everywhere that bombs are being dropped. So uh, how about some good news? Uh, and that is that Sasha Shulgin has not only bounced back from some of the health problems that have uh, so plagued him this year, at this very moment he is on the playa at Burning Man. Uh, I spoke with him a couple days ago, and he's, he just sounded wonderful and, uh, and really very excited about the fact that the next morning he was leaving for Black Rock City. And the fact that uh, he feels strong enough to spend a week in that very physically challenging environment uh, tells me that Sasha plans on being around for a long time yet. Another piece of news uh, you may find interesting is about the straight world's newfound fear, digital drugs. (laughs) You may have missed it, but uh, a few days back there was an article in a major U.S. newspaper that ran with a headline which read, Web delivers new worry for parents, digital drugs. And uh, the article concludes by saying, and I quote, If binaural beats work as promised, they are not safe. They could also create a placebo effect. The expectation elicits the response. Again, this is unsafe. At the very least, digital drugs promote drug use. Some sites say binaural beats can be used with illegal drugs. The sites also look favorably on the effects of illegal drugs. So, talk to your children. Make sure they understand the dangers of this culture. It could be a small jump from digital drugs to the real thing. End quote. (laughs) Now, should you want to learn more about this subject, you can read more about them in Wikipedia. But uh, a better approach might be to just Google uh, Binaural Beat LSD. Uh, That's B-I-N-A-U-R-A-L. And instead of just uh, Googling Binaural, uh, I put Binaural Beat LSD. And uh, then you'll find some of the forums that you can uh, go to and learn more about this. Uh, And by the way, uh, in case you think this is something new, I uh, I wrote about the development of digital drugs in the spirit of the Internet, which was published eight years ago. It's in the chapter titled Psychedelic Thinking and the Dawn of Homo Cyber. And uh, part of what I said back then was this. It is no secret that some of our best minds are working overtime on the development of what can be called digital drugs. This new generation of virtual reality devices will be able to launch you into entheospace just as effectively as does LSD today. The commercial availability of these devices will most likely signal the beginning of the last battle in the war on drugs. Finally, we will be able to reframe the issue into what it is really all about the right to control our own state of consciousness. Attorney Richard Glenn Boyer calls this cognitive liberty and defines it as, and I quote, 
the right of each individual to think independently, to use the full spectrum of his or her mind, and to engage in multiple modes of thought and alternative states of consciousness, end quote. When the first government hearings are held in an attempt to ban these new silicon-based cognitive tools, the power elite are going to be forced to confront the fact that it is human thought they want to control. It is not the substances that mainstream culture fears. It is the psychedelic thinking these substances promote that is under attack. And in the event uh, that you want to read the rest of that chapter, you'll uh, find a link to it uh, along with the program notes for today's podcast. In fact, uh, the entire book is online if you want to read it in HTML format. I keep meaning to put it up there in uh, PDF format for you to download, but uh, somehow that just uh, keeps slipping through the cracks. (laughs) Hopefully I'll get that uh, done yet one day, uh, but if I don't quit talking right now, I'm not even going to get this podcast out, so uh, I guess I'd better bring this to a close. But uh, just to finish this uh, digital drug story and bring it to an end, uh, none of the uh, postings I read on several forums had uh, anything very positive to say about the current quality of these ethereal substances, and uh, so I tried a few for myself. Uh, They're interesting, but I certainly wouldn't say that they are even close to what the experience is like when you use uh, the physical material. So now I'm thinking uh, (laughs) that uh, maybe what the screwheads are trying to do is to convince people who have never used LSD or cannabis or MDMA that uh, this is what the experience is like. Had I never used LSD and then tried one of these uh, alleged digital substitutes, I probably uh, never would have uh, tried the real thing because it wouldn't have been worth it. But that doesn't uh, mean the day won't arrive when virtual drugs will be a reality, uh, particularly uh, when you realize that the software uh, used to create these audio experiences is now available for you to work with yourself. So who knows, uh, maybe the new alchemists are going to be the geeks who stay up late and code all night. Anyway, uh, just because I'm not raving about how great these digital experiences are right now doesn't mean that I'm not a believer in this new form of alchemy. So code on, you brave souls. Uh, I look forward to your success. Now, there's uh, one more thing that I saved for the end of this podcast, and uh, that's a message that I got uh, from Nick Sand yesterday uh, in response to a question I asked about whether or not he had any words of wisdom he'd like to pass along. So uh, this is from Nick to you. What I would like to say is for them to remember and study what was going on in the 60s before and after criminalization of our sacraments and the importance of going back to the land, forming collectives, growing your own food and fuel, and tightening your belts and forget the American dream. It was a contrived spell to spin everyone into a lifestyle based on non-sustainability and planetary destruction. The idea was to sell waste and toxins as food and condemn real food as poison. Fluoride sold as a protection when it was actually toxic waste. Alcohol, tobacco, leaded gas, heavy metal misuse DU, aspartame to mention just a few. Gaia is our mother and the source of all wisdom. Learn from her, worship her, and learn to utilize her gifts as food and sacrament. Remember, love is the most important thing. So love one another and abide in light until the dream that is turning into a nightmare passes. It will pass, 
if we remember to not let the bastards get us down. It won't be easy, but it will be real. And then something even more important will arise. Beauty. Blessing in love, Nick Sand, Chief Alchemist, League for Spiritual Discovery. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. Thank you.